Acts chapter 20 is where we've been, we are arriving. I couldn't wait to get to Acts chapter 20 because it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, except not the part we're looking at today. <laughs> this is actually um, a very challenging passage for a preacher because it's pretty much a travelogue with one great story thrown in, to kind of an amazing story, kind of a weird story. But um, I'm not sure why Luke devoted this much space to Paul's travels. I mean, he's only got one scroll, and sp space is kind of precious, you know. And there's stories in the book of Acts I would have loved to have had filled out a little bit more, but he's going to spend quite a few verses on, on this. Actually, my wishes about how the book of Acts should be written are com <laughs> are completely unimportant. <laughs> And I think Luke's intention is probably better than mine, and the Holy Spirit is probably wiser than I am. In fact, I can count on that part. So to me, it's just like not immediately obvious that this is all super useful information, but I'm not living when Luke lived, and I can't see into his mind either. And a lot of Bible scholars have noticed that Luke likes to talk about travel, especially on the sea. It's like his, the coolest thing. I don't know when he first got to sail, but he loves it. So... Um, it, and all, it's pretty clear that he enjoys travel details, but, uh, but I think he had a wider, wi wider purpose for what he's writing, and I think the Holy Spirit has a wider purpose. So I'm asking in my head, when I'm looking at this passage, I'm like, so how did these 16 verses, 16 verses, advance the theme of the book of Acts? And it's not that obviously clear to me how it does that, uh, because here I am sitting in comfortable Acton 2,000 years later. Luke was there. So um, he's explaining Paul's movements and Paul's reasoning to these churches that he actually ministered to, right? So it might not interest me, but it certainly interested them because the people then, it was all about them. So uh, for, us it's, for us, it's kind of like reading Leviticus. I mean, I know when people start reading the Bible, they stop in Leviticus and you got to persuade them to keep going. <laughs> I, I, I know how that works. Because we kind of get bogged down in this, the diet things and the sacrifices and the feasts and all those things that, that don't really have a whole lot to do with us directly anymore. But to the people that it was written to, that was their whole life. And they had to practice, build their whole life around those things. So it was super important. But, you know, it doesn't mean that much to us. So, but th those rules ruled Israel for 1,400 years, you know, and beyond if you didn't become a Christian. So uh, for us until the New Covenant. So that was actually their life. So Paul's, Paul's traveling is including all these vibrant churches and who in many ways were connected to each other, especially because Paul was the founder of all of these churches, but also because his team, his men, would be shepherding them and going back and forth and then Paul would revisit. I mean, they had all these relationships with each other. So they would love to read this stuff about how Paul traveled and all that. So it's, it's, it mattered to them, and that's why it's here, and we should look at it. Is this part of Acts useful for today? More than you realize. And I actually think one of the reasons it's here is because 2,000 years later, God knew there would be this culture that would have a long Christian history, have once loved the Bible, and because of skepticism and unbelief and just a love of sin, that culture would try to destroy the faith that it was once largely founded upon. God knew that. And this skeptical age that we live in needs some certainty. And you know what you find here? Real history. 
certainty, eyewitness accounts, people that were there. That's what makes a difference. And as scholars have looked back and dug in the ground and raised up all of these cities and things that were long hidden, they find that the things that Luke says are true. And that in itself is really important. So for those of us living 2,000 years later in a skeptical age, portions of scripture like this are more important now than they maybe were 500 years ago or 600 years ago or something like that when people just said, yeah, okay, that's all true. Because these are real people and real events and there just isn't any fiction in the ancient world that reads like this with the details and the accuracy. They're phenomenal. Luke is a phenomenal writer and he's been all over these places and we've talked before about how he had precise knowledge of things that were lost to history and, but have been rediscovered in, through archaeology and he was totally right about things people used to say he was wrong about. So that information which Luke, who's a companion of Paul, gives here, it just also perfectly corresponds with the letters of Paul. And that's another thing that's really important. When were those letters written? Well, early really early and we're seeing that more and more. Most of the letters in the New Testament were written within 25 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the book of Acts itself was written about 30 years from the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well within, I mean I've been pastor of this church longer than from the time of Jesus death and resurrection till these letters and this book were written. And I remember when I started here. <laughs> A little bit. So what happens in today's text, when Luke is writing this about this particular time, it's only about eight years after these events happened. So that would be like me writing an article about Acton Faith Bible Church in 2013. I mean, think of it that way because that's what's going on. It was just a few years later that he's, that he's um, talking about the things that he's going to talk about here. Luke was a very careful historian of details and facts. And all of this supports in the strongest way what Luke said in the beginning of the gospel that he wrote. And it's the most important um, thing for I think a modern person to see how Luke began his gospel. And that's why whenever you see TV shows or read books or hear people knocking Christianity, they never quote ever Luke's gospel the way it begins, ever. This is how it actually began. This is Luke 1.1. Since many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That's a historian's approach. Luke was not an eyewitness. Matthew was. John was. Mark was a little bit. But Luke was, he became a Christian after all that happened. And here he is about 30 years later in his gospel writing that he investigated everything carefully and went to the eyewitnesses. People spin all kinds of theories these days in an effort to deny the historical Jesus. But God designed the Bible to make those theories and claims look pretty pathetic and weak. And they are. If you just took this at face value, this is strongly historical based on eyewitness testimony and evidence. He interviewed people. He checked it all out. 
has all the marks of a, a carefully written historical narrative. And it's been shown, like I said, to be very accurate. So that alone makes the travelogue stuff worthwhile. Just that, the idea of its accuracy. But I want to talk about inspiration a little bit too, the doctrine of inspiration, because the Bible is God's book. It's inspired, right? And Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 actually uses the word, he doesn't use the word inspired, the word literally, and you probably all know this, the anustos, that God breathed. It's like breathed out by God. It's right from him. And yet, here we see Luke is interested in travel stories and in plainly, he says his gospel was based on research. Now Matthew could just remember what happened and write it down, maybe with the aid of the Holy Spirit, and John, of course, the same thing. But Luke came to faith later, so he had to investigate it. He didn't know Jesus personally. Um, and why did he have to do research if God breathed out this book we're, we're looking at? Why did he have to do research for that? Couldn't he just write down whatever God dictated? People think about that kind of thing and they ask questions about that. Well, this is where people get kind of confused. God breathed does not mean dictated. Now, some parts of the Bible are dictated. Sometimes in the Bible, God will tell a prophet, write these words and he gives them the words. Sometimes that's the way it is. Very specific. Take this down as I give it to you. But the doctrine of inspiration of scripture, the full inspiration of scripture, is, is a broader idea than that. It means that, what it means is that God has chosen human channels and when they write scripture, whether it's a letter like Paul or a history like Luke, the history of Jesus and then the early church, that the Holy Spirit oversees and superintends what they're doing in their research and it comes out exactly the way he wanted it to come out. That's what God breathed includes. So it's not that God was dictating to Luke what to write, it's that God was superintending this effort. Luke was a prophet, so God was revealing truth to him, but he had his own interests, his own idea. You know, all of these writers have their own personalities come out in their works, and uh, God doesn't bypass their personalities. He's using their personalities and their experience. It's like when Paul, you know, Paul writes run-on sentences, like, really long. <laughs> and Paul will say things like, First of all, and he never does get to second of all because he's, he, he's, he's just so verbose about everything and, and that's inspired, but that's Paul, right? But he's an apostle. So what comes out is exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted to have come out. So it's inspired that way. It's God-breathed. Peter actually describes what I'm saying in Second Peter. Um, it's so helpful. Second Peter 1.21, he says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It's more than human. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the word moved means carried along or borne along. I call it the Pooh Sticks theory of inspiration. Anybody read Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> okay, three people, good. So in Winnie the Pooh, they play this game called Pooh Sticks and they, they, there's a bridge and the stream's running and they go to the upstream side of the bridge and they each have a stick and they throw it in the water and it gets carried along. Then they run to the other side of the bridge and they see who comes out first and they win. It's called poo sticks. Well, that word carried along is exactly the word that a Greek person would use for a stick being carried along by the water. In other words, it goes where the water wants it to go. And so when Luke is composing this, even though he's doing research and you know, formulating a plan and using his own language and his own thing, the Holy Spirit is guiding him to come out exactly the way the Holy Spirit wants it to come out. 
So you can rely on these words as divinely inspired, truly God-breathed, because the Holy Spirit has made that happen. So it does, it doesn't, he doesn't necessarily eliminate their personality. He uses it, and it comes out just the way he wants it. So the Spirit of God is bearing these guys along. So everything he says is exactly what he's supposed to say. God can use apostles and prophets just like that. In fact, God chose to use them just like that. And I think I know why. You can probably guess if you think about it for more than a few seconds. The humanity of these men touch us in ways that other forms of communication might not. Sometimes it's, it's right for God to give the Ten Commandments. This is what I have to say to you. And there it is. Other times it's really helpful for us to see David struggling with his life in the Psalms and being oppressed and feeling depressed and struggling with his faith and we identify with that or Paul suffering in, on the mission field and the weight of it all on his body, the weight of ministry to people and the churches and the difficulty of that and you feel that. That's different. It's a different kind of thing that we experience reading scripture than when we're just reading commands which are fine and those are real commands but, but it helps to have the human point of view as well. So God ordained that those men write their experience and their feelings in a way that is just as God breathed as the commands but it's just a different kind of literature to help us connect. So does that make sense? So the Bible could simply be pronouncements from on high. It could be that. Do this. Don't do that. Believe this doctrine. Here are some things to believe. But when we read the human experience involved in the lives of people. That's why so much of the Old Testament is historical. It's history. It's stories. And the New Testament here where we're looking at today is that way too. It, it touches us. So we learn by command and we learn by human experience as well. But all of it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's actually a perfect way to do it. If you're going to write a Bible, and guess what? God's perfect. So <laughs> he does it perfectly. It's, it's, it's good. Alright, so what does Luke have to tell us? Well, essentially he's giving us Paul's movements after Ephesus before he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to revisit the churches he planted on his second missionary journey and then come back around to speak to the Ephesian elders. And because his words will be what God wants to say when he does speak to those elders, he is speaking to elders in every generation for the last 2,000 years including us. And that is a fantastic thing about Acts chapter 20 which I couldn't wait to get to and that's next Sunday. <laughs> so let's back up here. So we're coming off this big kerfuffle in Ephesus from last week and, and thankfully the church was rescued from the craftsmen who tried to get the Christians in Ephesus in a lot of hot water either expelled or maybe worse for wrecking the economy and dishonoring the goddess Artemis and all of this kind of stuff. So chapter 20 begins like this. After the uproar had ceased have to get the tape if you weren't here. Tape? What is that? Little tape. <laughs> Listen online or whatever. Paul sent for the disciples and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece and there he spent three months. Now that's the way I kind of expect this thing to go. It's super concise. It just tells where he ended up, where he left from, where he ended up. It's very, very concise. He visited the churches in Macedonia. That would be Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and then down to Greece and it just mentions Corinth. It um, uh, doesn't mention it right there but I mean that's where he's been and then it says he stayed there for three months. So that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to visit his works, the churches that he planted, the saints that he knew 
and those who had come to Christ since he'd been in those places he could minister to them as well. The, you know the apostle that planted this church he's coming next Tuesday. Well that's great that's awesome. All, all the new Christians could be really thrilled about that. And he's going to exhort them to be faithful and teach them wherever there's any kind of lack of doctrine or anything like that. So there's a lot in the Corinthian letters of Paul that are actually about this visit. That he's going to be revisiting these, um, these churches especially in the Corinthian church there. So before Paul left Ephesus he sent Titus ahead to check out the situation there in Corinth. Now Paul had already written them and he didn't know how they had taken that and the letter had some pretty firm elements to it and he wants to know before he gets there what kind of state the church is in. Are, Are they upset with him? Are they rebelling? Are they complacent? Are they responding? You know, what's going on? And he was worried about it. So we find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to run through some scriptures real quick so you can follow if you want or just jot them down and look at them later. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12 that we find out that when Paul left Ephesus he went to Troas. Troas is on the coast of Asia and uh, we'll put a map up in a little while where you'll see it. But um, on the coast of Asia Minor and he and Titus were supposed to meet up at Troas. That was the plan. So 2 Corinthians 2.12 he says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord I had no rest for my spirit not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them I went on to Macedonia. So he stays there for a little while. He preaches, helps the church there, encourages everybody. Titus doesn't show up and they had this appointment you know. It's like we're going to be there at the same time and we're going to connect up on on the whole Corinthian situation. He's not there so finally he moves on to Macedonia. So that's across the sea there on the other side, the Greek side of things. And Paul used his time um, uh, well in in Troas but he's going to go on now. So and there he, he actually does meet Titus probably in Philippi. So he meets him in Macedonia. And he got really good news. The Corinthians still loved Paul and they were anxious for him to come. So that's what he wanted to know. So what kind of reception is he going to get there? So from uh, there, from a happy and grateful Paul, he writes 2 Corinthians um, to precede his visit. Now listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 5. This is 2 Corinthians 7 5. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. They they took the correction to heart. They humbled themselves. They repented. They got stronger in their faith. They wanted Paul to come. They loved him. They thanked him for that. And Titus comes and says, oh, they just, they so appreciate it. All that you did. Oh, good. Because he was really worried. He's a human being. He's really worried about it. So here's a church making their spiritual father very happy. So they accepted his rebuke in the spirit in which he was given. Christ is glorified. They're doing better. All is good. So Paul was right to write and scold them. That was the right thing to do. And they got it. And they accepted it. And they changed. So now we, uh, this letter we call 2 Corinthians is going to be taken by Titus back to Corinth. So he gets all the way up to Philippi and then he's going to go back to Corinth with this thing. 
and we don't know why he was delayed getting to Troas, that isn't said. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul mentioned, mentions two other brothers, and he doesn't name them, like, apparently they knew who they were, that are going to come and help him. So now, this was Paul's plan. He, his plan, and one of the reasons he's going to Jerusalem is all the churches in the, all the regions where he planted churches have been spending a year or two collecting funds and they're going to take all this money to Jerusalem. And because Jerusalem was hit really hard, the church was persecuted, there was a lot of poverty there and uh, other things were going on actually in Jerusalem that were very difficult at that time and they were going to just give them a ton of money. How better to build relationships between Jews and the, and the mother, I mean the Gentiles and the mother church of Jews back in Jerusalem than to just give them a, a big gift like that and just say we love you and not only send money but send a guy from each of those churches as kind of a committee or a, a, an embassy from all the Gentile churches to come and tell the Jerusalem church how much they were loved and how much they wanted to serve them and minister to them. So that's what's going on with all of this. So, 2 Corinthians 8, 18, Paul says, we have sent along with him, Titus, the brother, whoever that is, whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. So they must know who this brother is. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. We're not going to hold the money. We're getting a guy that's super well respected to be part of this group and he's going to be in charge of that. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So a lot of churches I could learn a lesson about that. What he just said right there. There's a reason why I can't write a check for this church. And, and I have to beg to be paid. No, not really. I get, <laughs> I get paid on time, but, but I can't, I can't tr- control any money. In fact, none of the elders control money in this church at all. None of the, none of the pastors. So, um, and it's for the same reason. Nobody can say that we're doing things to benefit ourselves. So my salary is set by the deacons, not by the elders. So we have sent them with our brother, whoever the brother is, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. And as for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. So that other brother in verse 22, it sounds like a different guy there. And then they're going to go with Titus. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. So he's just going to encourage them to participate in that gift. So you know what we actually see here? You see great care as regards money and the reputation of the church with regard to money and every church needs to have that. That's absolutely critical. We have open books here. I can't even understand a church that closes its books to marriage. No, you can't know what the staff makes. Why? Because you might think they live too high. Well, maybe they do. I mean, just... (laughs) That's, that's, that's not information that should be hidden, but that's kind of common. And the bigger the churches get, the more things are sort of hidden sometimes. So that's not a good situation. So you see a lot of care about money. Paul is not handling the money he helped raise. He's entrusting it to other men of high reputation. That's just wisdom. That's just wisdom. So they're, they're linked by this gift. They're all linked by Paul's ministry because all these churches he's been to or founded, most of them he founded, and they're linked by apostolic doctrine. Some of them struggle. 
Some of them are not perfect. Corinth is certainly not a perfect church. They're finding their way. They're, they're working on things. But they aren't branching off and doing their own things either. There's a unity in these churches. They're unified under apostolic doctrine and apostolic authority. And they work together. They communicate with each other. They send people back and forth to each other. I mean, goodness, um, you know, Priscilla and Aquila have been everywhere. They've been they, Rome, Ephesus, Corinth. They've, they've been serving in all different kind of places. And they're welcome everywhere they go. I mean, uh, whoever's on the team, they're all for it. They're all working together. So th there's a network of gospel faithfulness in, in these churches. That's just another thing to see here. And in charity, this, this wonderful gift they're willing to give. So the monetary gift is the one that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. Let me just back up for a second to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verse 1 he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. See that was the original thing where he talks about it in a letter. And then 2 Corinthians is much, much later. And he says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Oh, Galatia is going to be involved in this as well. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. There's not going to be a big heavy thing when I show up. You're going to just put a little bit aside every week and then we'll have it all there. That's the plan. All the Gentile churches in Macedonia and in Achaia and even in Galatia were to be a part of this great gift to Jerusalem. And then Paul explains this in his letter when he writes to Rome, in his letter to Rome, which he composed while he was in Corinth during these three months in our text today. So he sent, wrote this letter to Rome. Romans 15, 25, But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So his ultimate goal is to go west after he goes to Jerusalem. And go to Rome and then keep going. Just keep going. To Spain and then there's of course there's legends that he went to England. Which is possible. But um, amazing stuff here. It's just wonderful stuff. What, what, why am I saying all this? Because the carefully constructed history of Acts comports perfectly with these letters that were written within 25 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's not long. And that's one of the reasons the book of Acts even exists, to give a context for these letters, a, a very carefully and historically reliable thing. So a modern person that's going to be all skeptical, they want to say, oh, you know, people just made all the stories up about Jesus. You know, that really doesn't just work. It just doesn't work. It really doesn't. Um, you can't make all this up and have all this come together so perfectly and beautifully and uh, humanly, you know. That's why I think the human element is such a, critical part of all of this. It's, it's beautiful. You know, I love history, but my, uh, you know, I was a history major in college, but the, the best stuff in history books to me are the actual, what they call primary source material, the actual letters people wrote or a description of some event from a guy that was there. And those are the things that just ring my bell, as they say. So, <laughs> ding, ding. But uh, primary sources. Luke is a primary source for this story, for Paul's story. And it's, a, and it's a primary source basis for these letters that we have from Paul, which are also primary sources because they're written by him. So those are, that's strong historical stuff there. So Paul's plan is to take ship from Corinth, go to Syria, and then on to Jerusalem. But verse 3 of Acts chapter 20, now we're back in Acts 20 finally, 
says that there was a plot to take Paul out. And the plot was hatched by Jews in Achaia. So verse 3 says, there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Paul decided to return back the way he came, revisiting all those churches and working his way around that way and then sail to Jerusalem. That's what he's going to do. So we don't know what the plot was, but maybe it involved an accident at sea. Oops, that guy Paul, he fell overboard. Oh no, where's the lifesaver? I can't find it. I mean, you know, it could have been something like that. We don't know. But somebody may have paid these guys or there might have been a little cadre on the ship or something. That might have been something like that. But whatever it was, he's not sailing from Corinth. That's what he decided, right? So new plan. So he goes back the way he came, visiting the churches again. That's great. It's been months since he saw them. So he's going back through there again. And he does that. Verse 4, Luke tells us that, Luke, Luke tells us who was on his team in verse 4. He was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, of course, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. So Gaius and Aristarchus, we've heard those names before. Those were the guys that were dragged into the theater at Ephesus in the last chapter and almost had their uh, lives taken out of their, their way there. So um, by Demetrius, the, the terrible silversmith guy. So look at this group. I think this diverse group is directly related to this embassy going to Jerusalem. It's representing all of these regions there. And as I said, all the Gentile churches were sharing in the giving. And these men represent those mainland areas, at least, where each of these places where Paul planted churches. And they were all going to represent saying, the people of Galatia took a collection for you. The people of Achaia took a collection for you. The people of Macedonia took a collection for you. And take it all to Jerusalem and, and be able to say that together, each one representing their areas. So, so Peter and Aristarchus and Secundus, they're from Macedonia. Gaius and Timothy are from Galatia. And Tychicus and Trophimus are from Asia. I said those names. How do you like that? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think Paul often traveled with that many guys in his group. Seven companions. But this is a special way for all of these areas to connect with the mother church in Jerusalem at one time. Now I say seven, there's six names in verse three, but there's another, there's another person, he's in verse four. I mean, he's not in verse four, he's in verse five, verse five. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Waiting for us. Luke is with Paul here too. So this is another we section W-E, we section in the book of Acts. The last one was in Acts chapter 16. And guess where it stopped? In Philippi. So Paul planted a church in Philippi, left one of his team, Luke, there. Now he's going back through Macedonia, picking up Luke. He's been there for years, developing a, a mature church. It's ready to stand on its own feet. And Luke is going to go with Paul now. And so that's the we part of this. So Luke that never mentions himself by name, but you can tell when he's around because of the we. Eyewitness again. Eyewitness. So we assume Luke was the team member that was left to shepherd that church in Philippi. And, that, and it all fits perfectly. So it's no accident that Luke joins him from there. And um, verse 6. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And came to them, the other guys, at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. And here's where Luke tells this 
kind of strange, but um, slightly amusing if you're a twisted person like me, a story. It's, it's kind of a scary story. It has an amusing element to it. Only an eyewitness would include a story like this in a major work. <laughs> There's no reason to tell this story except it's so funny. But um, So the men in, stay in Troas for a week, maybe so Paul can be there on the next Sunday and worship with them. That's probably why. So verse 7, on the first day of the week when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. By the way, I have decided this morning that... No. <laughs> now, this is, this is their last time meeting with Paul. They probably are meeting in the evening, because, you know, Sunday... Having Sunday off was not true in the ancient world. That's a Western thing, because we're post-Christian culture. But um, they might have met in the evening. But this is just going on long, even for their typical evening time of breaking bread together and uh, hearing a message or something. But... Uh, it's Paul's last time with them, probably forever. And I think he knows that. And he wants to tell them lots of things and time goes on. Well, they're meeting on the third floor of what's probably somebody's house and it's getting late and the lamps are burning. And in verse eight, it says, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill. It's the third floor. <laughs> Sinking into a deep sleep. And Paul kept on talking. <laughs> I don't know if he was writing it with that tone in mind, but Paul kept on talking. And he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Okay, that's not really amusing, but Eutychus is famous for one thing, falling asleep during a sermon. That's what, that's what he's famous for. And, and falling out the window and, and dying and, uh, while Paul was talking. So, you know what? I'm not offended if you nod off a little bit now and then because... <laughs> If you fall asleep during Paul talking, you're, you're still okay. You're, you're doing better. Anyway, the story ends really beautifully well. Verse 10, that's why it's okay. It's amusing. Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled, for his life is in him. What Paul does, falling on Eutychus and actually embracing him with his body, is really similar to the way Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son. And Elijah did the same thing with the Shunammite woman's son, uh, stretched out his body over him. Elisha did it several times and, and raised them from the dead. They actually brought them back to life. So Eutychus was brought back to life in the same way. And that's a nice way to end the evening with a resurrection. You know, that's, that's a nice thing. But it turned out to just be a miracle break because they go right back upstairs, verse 11. When he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So some folks at least stayed up talking to Paul till daybreak. Now wouldn't you try to stay up if the Apostle Paul was there? Wouldn't you do that? I would do that. Not if I had to be at the office on Sunday morning. Well, maybe if it was Paul you would. You'd still do that. College kids would. They would stay up late. They do that for no reason at all. So eventually it's time to go. And we have lots of detail. I'm going to go throw a map up there. Can we do that? And uh, so I'm going to start in verse 13, and we're going to kind of follow this map. I meant to put one here, so I can't really see those screens very well. But kind of find, um, find Troas. Can you find Troas? So you're looking on Asia on the, the right side up at the top where you see Troas there? Okay, good. All right, so um, it says, But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board so that as he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. 
Can you see Mytilene on there? So just start working south and you're going to see there's these islands and uh, you can see where Ephesus is. He's going to go past Ephesus. That's what his plan is here. So sailing, uh, verse 15, sailing from there we arrived the following day opposite Chios. That's one of those islands. The next day we crossed over to Samos. That's an island. And then the day following we came down to Miletus. Can you see Miletus? Just keep going south there. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Paul is a softy and if he went to Ephesus he'd stay because they say oh don't go yet we you say another couple weeks or so and he's like no I'm not going to do that. But he does want to talk to them the elders. So he goes past and then verse 17 from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So if you followed that all down there, by the way, Essos is just an incredible city. It's just beautiful. Um, we were there. There's this remains of a temple to Athena there. And you go through this beautiful little village up to this very top that overlooks all the Mediterranean there. It's in gorgeous places. A lot of ruins, but this temple to Athena is what's left of it is, is really spectacular and just it was just gorgeous just an incredibly beautiful place it was built in like 500 BC and it was still it's a Greek city it doesn't have Roman architecture it's a Greek Greek bricks Greek stones it just looks very Greek so it's really a cool place anyway so Mytilene is an island Chaos is an island Samos is an island when they get to Miletus um, they go past Ephesus he does want to see the Ephesian elders one last time. He wanted to make Jerusalem by Pentecost so he does it where they have to come to him instead of him going to Ephesus. He wanted to give them a final exhortation and he tells them this is the last time they will see him. He had a very strong sense that he would not be that way again. And so uh, verse 17 he, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church and they came and then from here Following verse 17, we do have, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the most important speeches in the book of Acts and in the Bible, actually in the New Testament. Paul's words to the church elders. For all time, these words have to guide those who lead the church. And that's why it's so valuable and why you must hold us accountable to those words as well. That's your job. Uh, if you're not in leadership, it's your job to hold leaders accountable to the words that Paul will speak. And that's for next time. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these 16 verses. Here we see vibrant churches that are connected with each other, visiting and sacrificing for each other. We see courage to do God's work despite fear and opposition. And you've arranged that we in our modern age have an accurate accounting of events given in striking detail and you let us know even in these times that the book of Acts is a miracle of inspiration and careful historical writing. So bring us back next week to hear Paul's exhortation to the church leaders and bless us now as we partake of the bread and the cup together. In Jesus' name, amen.